Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I just got back from a three-week trip to Vietnam. My wife joined me for two of the weeks, and I had the third week. One of my clients and friends who lives in Thailand, Buzz, flew over to Saigon, or Ho Chi Minh City now. We visited the Mekong Delta, and then we went to an island called Phu Quat. With my wife, we went, flew into Ho Chi Minh City, we flew up to Hanoi, spent a few nights in Hanoi, went out and did a Helan Bay cruise. Then we went to Da Nang, visited Wayan and Hoi, Hoi An and Wei. And then we flew back to Saigon and then she flew out of there. So that was two weeks with my wife. I enjoyed it. Um, Vietnam is a bargain right now. And what I'm seeing is as we traveled around the country is it's becoming the manufacturing facility for China. Its labor is cheap, and Chinese companies are starting to locate their factories in Vietnam instead of in China to take advantage of the inexpensive labor. A lot of people in the country, a lot of motor scooters. I was you know, looking at Saigon. Saigon's a city of 12 million people, and they're on the move all the time. And if you take a cab and go down the streets, you're just overrun on both sides in front and in back of you by motor scooters. And I just imagine that it would be impossible for this city to move into automobiles and away from scooters because it would just be constant gridlock. Anyway, I enjoyed it. I don't think I have the desire to go back again unless I went back for some sort of a business purpose. I did meet a few businessmen that were staying at the hotel that I was staying at, and I had some discussions with them over a couple nights. One of them was one of the major furniture manufacturers headquartered out of, I think it's North Carolina. And he was in charge of the finishing. And they'd moved all of their manufacturing to Vietnam. They didn't manufacture anything. They contracted with companies in Vietnam to manufacture furniture for them to their specifications. And he was down there to make sure that the finishes were the finishes that they were looking for. He was in charge of making sure that the quality of the finishes matched what they wanted for their brand. Now, they did still manufacture overstuffed furniture in the United States, but all their other furniture, their chairs, their kitchen tables, uh, coffee tables, were now being manufactured in, in Vietnam. I also ran into a couple other companies that has their headquarters in Vietnam, and it seems to be the new manufacturing location, cheap labor manufacturing location, in Southeast Asia right now. So anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. So I've had a few letters from listeners, and I wanted to share them with you. This is from Christian. He said, great podcast. I appreciate all your vital information and your descriptive style. We sail our 1961 Rhodes Chesapeake among the 22 Apostle Islands of Lake Superior. We are teachers and spend about the whole summer on the boat. Someday we should get a boat to a new continent. Any information about what crossing the Atlantic is like? Option and days between ports. Thanks. 
you know, I've given this some thought, and I think I want to get somebody to interview that is an expert or has crossed the Atlantic more than me. I do not consider myself an expert. I consider myself a bungler that uh, was able to sail across the Atlantic. I did not do it at the right time of year, and I did not do it at the right route. So I'm not the right person to give you information on crossing the Atlantic. And when I, tr- when I cross the Atlantic, there's very little information out there on the proper routes. There, of course, I knew that the common route was to go down to Bermuda and then up to the Azores, uh, but I couldn't find really much more information other than that. So I'm going to reach out to a few people that have done some crossings. I'm going to try to find some authors that might have written some guides or some books on crossing uh, the Atlantic and try to interview them and, and get you some good information. I think that would be a good, a good podcast, a good topic for a podcast. So can't really help you there. But uh, look forward to possibly getting a podcast out on it in a future episode. I got another letter from Steve Adams. Steve said, I enjoyed the podcast for a few years now. They are very informative and very entertaining. I started sailing in 2013 when I bought a very used sunfish. I joined a community sailing group, took lessons, and now I'm a certified small boat instructor living here in Michigan. I've done a little Great Lakes sailing, so i Bought your 101, 103, and 104 lessons. They have helped me get through the winter. The podcasts are the most excellent quality from the very first one. I particularly enjoyed the talk you had with the guy who does the rigging, and that guy was Brian Toss. And the boat I first coveted was a Bristol Channel Cutter. Thanks again. Hey, I forwarded that up to Brian. It's always nice to know you're appreciated. So thanks for writing, Steve. Another letter I got was from Don Milley. He said, good day. I was listening to an interview you did on another podcast and was concerned when you mentioned the high tax for your stay in Cleopatra in Previsa. I'm just about to take my Canadian catamaran there this June. We are leaving Tunisia and are going to Greece. I need a place to lay the boat up for a year till I conclude business in Canada, and a big tax bill would be a problem. Can you fill me in on some detail? Love the podcast. They're very informative. Not completely to my taste, but that's life. We don't have to like everything in a meal to enjoy it. Thanks for any info that could save a sailor some pain. His boat is ice bear. Well, Don, um, Cleopatra Marina was not the problem. The problem was the government. Uh, In fact, Cleopatra Marina, the manager when I was there, uh, helped me (laughs) fight, fight the bureaucracy just to relaunch my boat and get it back into the water. Uh, Cleopatra Marina was a great marina. The problem was not Cleopatra Marina. It was uh, two months later when I'd sailed through Greece and was leaving the country and and sailing on to Turkey. And it was in the island of Kosh. And uh, as soon as I tried to check out, they started uh, pulling out their books, showing me all sorts of laws which were written in Greek and I couldn't understand, and, and decided that because my boat had been in the country more than six months and this this tax apparently still exists, uh, that they will, and if you're a non-EU person, then they, they're going to tax your boat. So uh, to, to avoid that, I would say don't even leave your boat in Greece. Move on to Turkey and leave your boat in Turkey. That's, that's why I don't leave my boat in Greece anymore. They got $600 from me way back when, and that's cost their uh, <laughs> maritime industry thousands and thousands of dollars that they would have had from possibly me mooring my boat or wintering my boat in Greece. But no, they want to take the short-term route and tax me 
So I don't let them do that more than one time. I learned my lesson the first time. I've never left my boat in Greece since then. I will not leave my boat in Greece uh, as long as they're going to be taxing me like that. It's easier just to sail it on to Turkey and leave it in one of the many marinas that are available in Turkey uh, for that. So that's my uh, my my take on Cleopatra Marina. And like I say, Cleopatra Marina was a great marina. They did a great job. It's nothing against the marina. It's against the bureaucrats, the pencil pushers that decide they have a, a claim on your wealth for <laughs> for really no reason at all. Okay, another email from Rod. Says new to your podcast library. Episode eighty one is the most informative podcast that I've listened to on the webcast. Thank you, and Paul Michael. Uh, that was the one with Navionics, as I recall. Well, you know, I didn't think it was one of my best podcasts, but if you thought it was great, I appreciate your comments. Thanks, Rod. Boy, I've got a lot of emails, and I'm going through these. Uh, I got one from Richard Jardine. Richard said, Franz. Great couple of recent podcasts with the Nervous Sailor and the Do-It-Yourself Autopilot. Like you, I am interested in building a tiller version of this autopilot. Sounds like it's best to wait until he gets the new Bosch Compass working. I am a software developer, but not an engineer. If you hear of anyone else that wants to work on a tiller version, let me know. Thank you for your efforts on your podcast. They are a valuable resource. Well, Rich, I've uh, I've already taken on this project, and I've pretty much got a working prototype. It's not that big a deal. Uh, it's and uh, and Jack has been really helpful in getting me to get to the point where I'm at. So I'm now going from the prototype stage into the um, into the actually the the hard wiring and the final phases of of this tiller pilot that I'm building, and it's not that big a deal. Um, Jack is very helpful to me. I, I'm a neophyte. You'd probably have a lot more up on me because you could probably read the code and understand it a lot more than I can. So I wouldn't wait. Uh, he's got the Bosch Compass working, by the way, and I've been using, I've got both versions of Compass on, working on mine. And uh, don't, don't hesitate to drop him an email and say you want to get uh, some information on it. I know there's been a couple of people that have reached out to Jack, and he's shared some information with them. And I think one of them was from Scotland or Ireland. He told me that they'd gotten a hold of him and had given them some information on building the uh, the Arduino autopilot. So don't uh, hesitate to jump into it. Sooner the better. The next email comes from Jeff Wedig of the Escape Pods podcast. Jeff and I did a cross-podcast promotion a while back, and he dropped me a note saying, Hey, Franz. Just got done listening to the podcast you did with Vin from Sailing Nervous. Thought it was a great interview. He's on my short list. I want to catch up with him after he's got his boat down here on the bay and try to do a live podcast with him out sailing, if possible. I've chatted with him just once or twice on Facebook, so I hope he's game. I've been following him since about episode 7 or 8, back during the summer. At one point, he was looking at the marina right next door to my yacht club. But I think he finally settled on one down in Harve de Grace, which is about 10 miles around the bay from where I'm at on the Northeast River. I'm digging the Moody 34-2, wondering if it's as good as advertised. I think we might have to buy your buddy Jack a few beers someday or something. He's quite the super fan. It's great to see you tweets and retweets all of your links and such. Anyway, thought I'd drop you a note. Keep up the good work. The last one about hacking the autopilot had my head spinning, although it didn't help that I was listening on my way home from work after a particularly long 12-hour night shift. Anyway, hope all is well. 
Boating season is getting closer, just not fast enough for me. Take care, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the comments. <laughs> I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of one, and this is basically going to be my advertisement for this podcast. And the subject says, "Loved your ASA lessons," and it's from David Jevons. David said, "Franz, I really enjoy your podcast. In January, my wife and I went to the Virgin Islands and took our 101, 103, 104, and 114 ASA certifications during a week-long sailing cruise on a 44-foot Fountain Peugeot catamaran." operated by Blue Water Sailing School. The week was excellent, although spending every day from 8 a.m. to midnight thinking, living, practicing, or studying sailing was certainly a different way of relaxing. I bought all your sailing audio lessons, and my wife and I listened to them prior to our cruise and during it. We found the material and your presentation to be very helpful. We both passed our 101, 103, 104, and 114 certifications with flying colors. Thank you for your great audio lessons and practical advice, which puts those lessons into context. They were very helpful. I also really enjoy your podcast, the discussions and interviews you had in the last six months about Greece and Croatia were enjoyable. We will be doing a week bareboat charter in Croatia this summer with our children aged 17 and 21. Dave Jevons. Dave, I really appreciate that. Thanks for reaching out to me and letting me know how you felt about my my audio lessons. So that's my advertisement on my audio lessons. They're available at the website. And it's nice to know that some people found them useful. All right. This last one came as a bit of a surprise. It's from Chris Riba in Chicago. Chris said, Franz, I doubt you remember me, but I did the Chicago Mackinac Regatta with you in 2005 or thereabout on Ed Valenti's boat. I think I was likely finishing up law school at the time. Just came across your podcast, and I've listened to them all. They're great. Keep them coming. Chris. Chris, I remember you. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out to me. Some people catch up on Facebook. I catch up by people listening to my podcast. And then he wrote back after I did the one on maritime law, and he thought that was very interesting as well. He's a lawyer, and, and uh, but maritime law or admiralty law is a real specialty. All right. Before we get into the main interview, Neil Fletcher decided he wanted to take a crack at answering Tyler's question on sailing in Greece and learning to sail. And I appreciate Neil taking the time to do this. I, I, I'm just one man here, and I just have one opinion. And Neil said, hey, Franz, I want to take a stab at Tyler Drogan's question about getting certified and learning to sail and going over and chartering a boat in Greece. So I'm going to play his answer to Tyler's question, and then we're going to get straight into the content of this lesson, which is a second interview I've had with Kim Brown of Sailing Britikin. Delightful woman. I always enjoy talking to her. So, so I'm going to go directly from Neil's suggestions for Tyler and then go straight to the interview with Kim. So thanks for listening. This is Neil Fletcher, friend of France, sailor, and occasional contributor to the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I had listened with interest to Tyler, who sent an email to France a few weeks back, asking a few questions which I thought I could contribute an answer to. 
So, uh, Tyler, I'm going to answer your question in no particular order, starting with the one about whether or not it is better to get your certifications before you go or once you're already on the boat, courtesy of, your, of the charter company of your choice. And I would say very emphatically that you should get your qualifications before you go. The ones you will need are the American Sailing Association 101, 103 and 104. And the rationale for suggesting you do it before rather than during is that although the charter companies like Sunsail and the Moorings have accelerated on-the-water learning programs when you're there, what you really want to do is hit the ground running because you're spent, going to spend a lot of money flying over to Europe and the moment you get to that beautiful sun-kissed destination you're not going to want to be stuck in the port spending two or three or four days learning. What you really want to do is going to want to cast off and get rolling. So no matter where you are, uh, provided you're somewhere near a good, bod good sized body of water in the States, you will be able to do that and I believe you said that you were planning to be in the Bay Area pretty soon for a while and uh, there's plenty of options there to do some ASA courses. So that would certainly be my advice. As far as cutting the cost down, you could always pull your funds with the other folks who are going with you. You can allocate one skipper whose name will be on the charter agreement, and then perhaps you can do a little bit of teaching when you're there. Now, that's not going to give them the same knowledge as you, but it will certainly help them to be uh, more of competent crew, which will mean more enjoyment for you. Um, you also mentioned about the RYA courses, which stands for the Royal Yachting Association, which is the English governing body. They have a few places over here that you can learn as well, um, but really your choices are pretty uh, limited about the locations. And uh, although some folks do feel that the RYA courses are superior, the ASA 101, 103 and 104 will be actually absolutely fine for chartering all over the world. Um, you may also want to consider meetup.com. That's a good way, in my experience, to get on the water experience on the cheap. Now, where I am in Southern California, there are at least a dozen local groups with skippers taking people out on the water regularly. Some of them are just looking for regular sailing companions, and others are racing skippers who are hoping to recruit new crew. I did a quick Google search on meetup.com in the Bay Area or on your behalf, and I quickly found half a dozen sailing meetups, so that would certainly be a good place to start. And then to reiterate what Franz has said on numerous occasions, you should really check out the local racing scene, and your timing right now this time of year is perfect because the season is just about to start in the next couple of weeks. And I would almost guarantee that if you go to the website of local racing clubs in the Bay Area, you will find at the very least some crew wanted uh, notice boards. And you'll probably also find a few introduction to racing seminars that have been um, that have been scheduled. That's certainly the way we do it here. My local yacht clubs are the Cow Yacht Club and um, the Marina del Rey Yacht Club here in Marina del Rey and a couple of others. And they're both having introduction to racing seminars in the next couple of weeks. And so I'm sure that's also the case up in the Bay Area. You may also want to check out the website for PHRF, which is Performance Handicap Racing Fleet, I believe it stands for. They are the governing body across the country that allocates time handicaps for each individual boat. And um, they will have a list of, at very least, they will have a fleet list in the local area. So that's a good place to get some leads as well. As far as choosing charter companies in the MED, 
the three real big ones I would say are Sunsail, The Moorings, and a company called Kirakulis. Um, and certainly, if it's the first time that you've chartered, you're better off probably going with the, with the bigger companies because they have bigger fleets, usually newer boats, more boat choices for you, and quicker response times if you have a problem. If you run across, uh, if you run aground or your engine stops working, you want a company that can get someone there in an hour or two so you're not stuck twiddling your thumbs. Um, so that's certainly something to consider. But if price is, is important, once you've got your qualifications, I would think very seriously about looking at latesale.com. Now, this is a company which wholesales excess charter inventory from reputable charter companies all across the world. So if, let's say, for instance, the, you are Sunsail and there is a boat that is free and it's only it's, it's in six weeks' time and it still hasn't been booked, then you put that boat on late sale, usually at a hefty discount, um, because you'd rather, it's obviously it's a perishable resource, and you'd rather fill it at a reduced price than have it sitting there empty. And so that, of course, means a good opportunity for you. Now, I did a quick search in Greece in the parameters I put uh, would, should be between 35 and 45 feet for three weeks any time in June. And I found very quickly a 35-foot Sun Odyssey, which you could charter for $1,500 a week. Now, I believe you said in your group there were six people. Um, if that's the case, that's $250 a week each. Now, I don't know about you, but I would find, a very, find it very difficult to get a decent hotel room on the water in a nice location for $250 a week, let alone my own boat. So that would really be an excellent choice for you, I think. And if you're looking to rent for three weeks, it would still keep it very affordable. So it's latesale.com. Um, the only folks who that really wouldn't work are the sort of folks who need everything or their arrangements to be written in stone six months ahead of time for those sort of folks late sale perhaps isn't such a great choice but if you're flexible with your time if you're young footloose and fancy free and you can make your plans close to or at the last minute and you have that sort of intestinal fortitude then i think that's a great choice and it's also a good choice for people at the other end of the spectrum retired people who don't have to worry about children they don't have to worry about job schedules I think it's a very good choice for them. And in fact, I was turned on to late sale by my sister, who is a retiree. She lives in Bordeaux in France with her husband, and they've chartered for 20 years or more. But they discovered late sale, and they really loved it because of, one, the flexibility that they could take advantage of, two, the price, and also because it introduced an element of serendipity to the whole, uh, the whole venture. It allowed them to consider locations that they'd never considered before based on price and availability and they've had some really wonderful sailing experiences that otherwise they would not have had so that would be a very strong recommendation from me for you Tyler or indeed for anyone else who's looking to save money and avoid what can often be a hefty bill from the charter companies so I hope this advice is useful um, I'd like you to, I'd like to congratulate you on what you're doing, urge you to follow your dream. And um, apart from that, I guess all I can do is wish you good luck, fair winds and uh, following seas. So this is Neil at the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast signing off.
I'm talking with Kim Brown of Sailing Britikin. This is my second interview with Kim, but the last time I talked to Kim, she was in the Mediterranean. Now she's in the Caribbean. You've done an Atlantic Passage, and you've been down in the Caribbean for how long now? Uh, we've been here in the uh, Caribbean since, um, gosh, we left uh, Las Palmas, Gran Canaria, in November, and so we managed to get to the Caribbean in uh, mid-December. So we've been here since mid-December. About a couple months, so. Well, first of all, tell me about your Atlantic Passage. Any excitement there, or was it pretty standard? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know really what to expect. Uh, I knew it was going to take a, a while, and I was worried about my seasickness. So I was apprehensive about, you know, getting seasick and that ruining the passage. Um, and also having a five-year-old cross with us, I was slightly concerned about that, especially if I was seasick. But um, actually, the whole trip was phenomenal. I took um, a couple different kinds of seasickness pills, and I did have a, a slight issue, but it, you know, I went down, but I bounced back up. But overall, it was one of the most memorable things I've ever done in my life. The, my husband enjoyed it. My daughter enjoyed it. We had uh, three other crew members, and we all got on like a house on fire. We had lots of laughs. It was just fantastic. The, the sea was okay. We, we had some problems, um, uh, one disaster, um, a couple breakages. <laughs> um, but overall, it was just a phenomenal experience. Well, what was the disaster? Oh, this was horrible. We, we decided to fly our spinnaker, um, and the conditions were okay for it. Actually, no, it wasn't our spinnaker. It was our Jenica. Um, we decided, so we decided to sail one of our larger sails, and it had a furling unit at the base of the sail. Um, so what you'd do is pull it up on a halyard, and then you'd affix, well, the, the, the um, furling unit would be affixed at the foredeck. But what happened was that sail went up, and then the actual furling unit came detached and went flying for, I mean, I don't even know how 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 many meters the sail is, but it ended up effectively becoming a wrecking ball flying in front of the boat. And then there was like five of us on deck trying to figure out how we were going to catch it. Um, so it was kind of like, like slowed down. Everything went in slow motion. Um, and then what happened was we did catch it once and then it flew out of our hands again. And then the second time we caught it, we managed to tie it onto a cleat. And then we ran over the sail and heard rip, 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 bing. Um, and fortunately, uh, it, it kind of ripped apart and it ripped in the best way possible. Uh, we, we managed to stop the boat and pull the, the sail in. Nobody was hurt, thankfully. Um, and it only cost like $100 to repair the sail, believe it or not. But for a moment there, I could see either the, the boat getting, you know, hold or somebody's head coming off. It was, it was really scary. Wow. So did your sail go up on, an, uh, on a foil and it was attached to this drum then? Because I'm trying to imagine what it, what it was. Because I know what a regular furling gear is, and you've got the foil and the drum at the bottom. So yes. is this what you did? You put it up the foil and the drum came undone at the bottom then? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. What had happened is we, we were flying that sail uh, very effectively um, for several days, but what happened was we caught a fish. So um, in order to slow down and pull the fish in, we had to furl the, the sail, and it didn't furl properly. So we then spent hours on deck trying to refurl it by hand, and then when we put it up, it just 
ended up being the, like a disaster. It didn't unfurl properly, and then it flew out of someone's hand, and it was just like one thing after another. So um, that was the end of that sale for for uh, the the trip. But it is now mended, and uh, I think everybody learned a lesson there. So, <laughs> and unfortunately, no one got hurt, but it was very scary. So, did you catch many fish while you were coming across? Yes, we did. Um, it's amazing because you talk to some people and they're like, they didn't see any dolphins. They didn't catch any fish. They saw no wildlife. And then you talk to other people, they caught like 30 fish and saw whales. Um, I think we were right in the middle. We, we managed to catch a fish, uh, at least one fish, every time we put the pole in the water. Um, and as long as we were going to uh, keep the fish, what we decided to is, is not fish anymore. So we'd, we'd fish catch it then we'd eat it and then when the fish was gone we'd catch another one so um we caught about maybe four uh el dorado uh one oahu i think it was called and uh we we caught a tuna it took three guys to pull it in it was it, it didn't look like super long um but those things are massive they're round so that fed us for three days the tuna so yeah we had we had excellent luck with catching fish Wow. How about since you've been in the Caribbean? Have you put your pole over very often while you've been in the Caribbean? We haven't because um, they, they kind of, um, the, the locals don't want you catching fish, um, certainly not at an anchorage. And what I found here, which is so different than the Mediterranean, is the second you pull up your anchor and open the sails, you're at the next island. So, I mean, you don't even have time to put a pole in the water, at least where we have been so far. Okay, so tell me where you are right now then. Right now we're in St. Lucia, uh, we're in Rodney Bay Marina because we're, we're picking up some friends. Um, so this is where we arrived, but since we arrived, we've, we've uh, done all of St. Lucia. We've dropped down into St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So we've done Tobago Keys, Union Island, um, Mystique, Mustique, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's probably it. Uh, Beckway. We've also done Beckway. So I've done videos um, on my YouTube channel of, of all those places. We really, really, I mean, we've enjoyed this area so much. It's very unspoiled. The water's very clear. The coral is still living. The fish, I mean, there's, there's um, stingrays in the water, turtles. Uh, we saw puffer fish that were, like, bigger than my daughter. Um, really amazing wildlife, beautiful blue turquoise water. Gosh, it, it is a paradise down here. Yeah, and, and in, in the Mediterranean, it's like a desert in the water. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I mean, I love the med, but I am writing an article now between the differences between the med and, uh, and the Caribbean. And boy, one of them is that there's life in the, in the water here. Yeah, yeah. And in the Mediterranean, there may be some fish way out at sea, but boy, when you come in and start snorkeling around, you might see an octopus now and then and some little fish now and then, but you very rarely see really many fish. I noticed when I I chartered a boat in French Tahiti one time, and it was like a true aquarium. And then I chartered a boat in in the British Virgin Islands one time. And to me, it was like a desert compared to the South Pacific. But now... When I compare the Caribbean to the Mediterranean, the Caribbean is like this Garden of Eden compared to the Mediterranean. There's just not much. I mean, the water's clear in the Mediterranean. It's beautiful water, but you just don't see much life in the Mediterranean. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I have to say, when I did see life, it was generally a jellyfish, so I wouldn't go in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at your website, and I just read your article, and I thought we ought to talk to you about this. What do cruisers panic about? 
And I thought that was a really interesting article because I think uh, it points out something that uh, most people don't consider when they imagine, you know, selling everything and sailing away. Tell us about that article. And, and of course, I'll point people to your website. And what do you panic about? Yeah, um, I, I think sometimes, uh, especially it happens, and I've said this in the article, it happens at night. I wake up at like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and I think, what the heck am I doing? You know, I've, I've spent two years sailing in the med and now I'm spending, I don't know how many years in the Caribbean. And, um, I just get this, I don't know, this weird feeling like I, I should be having a, a purpose in life or, um, I don't know, contributing to society more or working. I think sometimes it's maybe because I work so hard for so long that I can't, I can't get that out of me. Um, I just feel driven to do something. And because I'm, I'm not doing anything <laughs> per se, uh, I just wake up and I have this kind of just weird dark shadow come over me. And I think, am I making the right, you know, choice? You know, am I in the right place? Um, and I got to say, too, this doesn't happen all the time. But, um, I, yeah, I, I guess I, maybe I feel guilty. I, I feel like, am I having my cake and eating it, too? You know, am I, is it possible to, to live the life we live? And, I mean, our life is not perfect. We've got lots of problems. But. Maybe for the first time, I'm actually doing something that I enjoy, I'm passionate about, but it's not the traditional work thing. Does that make any sense? It, it <laughs> does. You feel like you should be doing something worthwhile, but, you know, you're feeling guilty about reaping the benefits of your previous work, it sounds to me like. You know, you, you worked hard, you made some money, you bought your boat, and you're living your dream, and you feel guilty about it then. Yeah, yeah, I guess that is that. All right, so tell us... In your opinion, tell us, contrast what you found in the Mediterranean to what you're seeing so far in the Caribbean. What are the big differences? We already talked about the life in the water. Yeah, okay, so there's the water. The other things are um, the, the people here are uh, amazingly and incredibly friendly, and they're very entrepreneurial. Um, in all the bays that I've been in, and I've gone from one end of the med to the other and back again, not once did a boat come up to me and ask if I wanted my laundry done or supply fruit or bring a breakfast baguette or bring bracelets. Um, and yes, that can sometimes be annoying when you have visitors, but it, it really is incredible. You can stay at an anchorage for weeks. People will bring you stuff. Um, the locals are so kind. If you if you have garbage and you're in a place where there's no place to put the garbage, they'll take it for you. And yes, they'll charge a little bit of a fee, but it's not much. Um, so that was a, a, a big difference. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if we talked about it last time, but when uh, we had our last interview, I think it was when Greece was going through the real, you know, major financial problems and they still are um but like half the time when we moored the boat in greece no one came to collect the money let alone anyone coming to the boat and trying to serve us you know with or, or being entrepreneurial to make some money so that's one big thing i've noticed here is that the people are super nice and they're here to help out and yes they're going to make some money but i think at least they're getting off their butts and doing something so um that's a difference um another difference is, is a lot it's a lot wetter here, so it rains at least once every day, and it's usually a heavy downpour, but it comes and goes, um, but that makes it green here, and a lot of the meds, you know, if you're sailing towards the end of the summer, or, you know, especially in the Aegean, it's just like rock, you know, so um, 
the greenery here and the lushness and the palm trees and the beautiful flowers. It, it really is a beautiful backdrop when you've got that turquoise water, the green, you know, background and then the blue sky. Um, of course, not to say the Med isn't beautiful either. It's just a different kind of beautiful. Now, the, what I always liked about the Med, and you might talk about this, is the difference in culture. Are you seeing different cultures in the islands that you visited or are they, is it fairly consistent? Yeah, I mean, we've only been, I mean, we're going to uh, Martinique in a couple of days, and that's a French uh, island. So I'm sure it's going to be a different culture there. But uh, the St. Vincent and uh, the Grenadines and St. Lucia, people all seem very similar culture, eat the similar things. Um, the only thing I have noticed is there's more wealthier areas and more poor areas. Um, when we were in Union, I think that's the first place I've been where some places didn't have electricity. Um, and when you went to a, a little supermarket or a mini market, they barely had anything on the shelves. So, um, but as far as culture seems, no, I, I mean, I haven't seen differences within this area like you, like you see when you're in uh, the Med and you go from, say, Italy to uh, Greece. I mean, they're different languages. They're different values. They have, you know different perspectives i think on life although saying that there is the whole mediterranean mediterranean culture which you know you can kind of group together mm -hmm. now does that answer your question I sort of, yeah <laughs> I, I think so and you haven't been there long enough to really make a lot of comparisons i and i understand that but let's yeah. let's talk about your website one of the things i like about your website is you're doing a lot of videos and one of the videos i saw which which i really appreciated was how to uh, eat sea urchins and, yeah, yeah. You, and I'd, you know, I'd always, you know, there's sea urchins all over the Mediterranean. That's one of the things you can find in the water. But uh, I thought that was really interesting. What did you, when you made it, do you like the taste of the sea urchin eggs? Well, um, in Italy, Italians uh, eat them. So it's, it's, it's like a delicatessen in, in Italy. And one of their most famous dishes is to have the sea urchins over spaghetti, of course, over pasta. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... Up until that video, I hadn't actually tried them. And um, our friend uh, Admiral Stefano was on our boat with us, and we were actually in Greece. And then the Greeks will not eat or sea urchins at all. You'll never see them on the menu. So there was tons to pick from. So I said to Stefano, I said, hey, you know, should we go out and get some urchins and you can show me, what, you know, what to do with them? And uh, it was quite funny because... When Stefano tried them, he liked them, and of course, because he, he knows he's had them before, my husband thought they were the most disgusting thing in the world. <laughs> um, when I tried them, I thought they were, I don't know, kind of tasted like a salty fish water, but when you actually put them on pasta, the kind of the sweetness of the pasta and the, the fish eggs, and I, I do not like caviar, um, but the combination of the pasta and the sea urchin eggs, um, it actually, I thought it was brilliant. I would totally order it at a restaurant. It was really, really cool. I don't know, however, if I'm ever going to harvest the, uh, the sea urchins myself and, and do what you have to do to get the eggs. That's a bit, uh, it, it seemed a bit gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great, a great descriptive video of how to do it. So I was yeah. great. I'd read about it before that you can eat sea urchin eggs, but I'd never known how to harvest them. So that was a great video on that. You have a great section on your website on what's cooking. And I'm going to try one of those recipes tonight. Oh, so, thank you. So let me talk about money for a second. Are you making any money from your website? How are you financing? Is it still using your savings of a past, 
your, your past, uh, the sale of your business. How are you getting through on the monies? Yeah, it's a good question. And I must get an email a day asking that. Um, yes, we're still using our savings. Um, I am, however, seeing increases across the board for all the things that I am um, selling. So I have a little shop that does T-shirts and jewelry and sarongs. So I am making some money there. Um, I have two books that I sell on Amazon, and I'm getting really good you know, feedback from people buying them. Um, they're both on checklists. So one's on VHF, you know, how, like um, templates for doing a Mayday call or Pan Pan or whatnot. And the other one is checklists for a boat, you know, um, how to brief a new crew, um, how to tell people to pack to come on a boat, you know, for example, don't bring a hard suitcase and don't bring high heels and leave your toenails unpainted, that kind of thing. So those books are selling on Amazon um, and they're doing they're doing pretty good. Um, and then I am starting to see an increase in uh, big companies approaching me, asking me for advertising space. So um, and then there's also. On my videos, if you if you watch a video on YouTube, there's those adverts at the beginning. If somebody does uh, click on them, I do get a, a small amount of money. And I suppose it's all adding up a little bit at a time. I would say maybe $300 a month. Okay. Um, so, but saying that in the last, you know, I, I think I wrote to you, the last month my... Um, YouTube uh, had like 20,000 views. So things are starting to pick up and, you know, hopefully you get a little bit more because uh, I, I feel like I'm, you know, providing entertainment and, and education. So I, I don't feel, I don't know, I've been looking at some other people out there that are doing videos and they kind of are just showing how much fun they're having rather than educating people. Mm -hmm. So hope I'm going more down the creating value and I'm not saying that it's not valuable to you know show people you're having fun um but I'd like to I, I think the 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 area of the market that I'd like to work with is like educating people on how to get out there and do what we're doing you know mm -hmm. so that's the plan at least for now <laughs> well I'm at your your shop and I'm just checked on uh, chicken and herb spice blend and and it comes up and you add it to a cart. So you're not fulfilling through Amazon. You've got another another fulfillment service that you're using for that for your physical products. Then right? Yeah, it's called my mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then <laughs> <laughs> she lives in the United States, and so she ships it out from the U.S. Then. Yeah, yeah, which is which is great. But I assumed most of my sales would be in America, and I just got one from India today. Two days ago, I got one from uh, uh, Denmark. Three like last week, it was a couple from uh, other European places. So uh, I think maybe I don't have a, a massive American following yet, or something. <laughs> so my mom always is calling me saying, "You should." You're not making any money because the shipping cost to all these places is quite high. <laughs> but eh, it's a start, isn't it? Yeah. Now, your daughter, her name's Simone, right? Close. It's Sienna. Sienna. Okay, I'm looking. Yep. Okay, Sienna. How is she enjoying it? How is she making friends as she's going along? How, how is she doing? Yeah, she's doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, before we left uh, Las Palmas, before we crossed the Atlantic, um, we, we went with ARC, which is the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers. So there was about 200 boats that all crossed the Atlantic at the same time. And uh, ARC put all the kid boats on one pontoon. And I would say there was 25 to 30 kids. 
and Sienna made some great friends that not only did we, you know, uh, enjoy being together and doing a lot of activities in Gran Canaria, but we've been sailing with them since we got here. So pretty much every single bay we've gone to, we've run into people we know or we've been traveling with our friends that we made, and it's been brilliant. So she's, in the past two weeks, uh, she's learned how to snorkel, use flippers, jump off the side of the boat, um, and, and, and from an education perspective, that seems to be taking off too because a lot of the friends around her are a little bit older. So that's kind of, I think, bringing her up, you know, causing her to up her game um, when it comes to homeschooling because I think she's feeling like a little adult now and, and she's working hard and playing hard. It's great. It's great to see her growing. Okay. So, so she's got plenty of friends along the way. And that's what you're doing to homeschooling her. Do you have to spend much time doing that or is she doing it herself? Is she, she reading the books and learning it on her own? Well, she's only five, so she's just starting to read. Okay. I um, forgot that she was that young. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But she's, she does, yeah, she does all of it with either my husband or I. Um, but we do have some really good educational apps that she kind of thinks are games, but they are, you know, I disguise them as games, but they are education. And uh, she'll do those by herself. But we must spend, I would say, on average an hour and a half to two hours a day. Um, pretty much every day. Sometimes we take Sunday off. Um, and I use a variety of printouts and books. And um, it's, it took me forever to figure it out. But you just have to constantly do stuff that's a little bit challenging so she doesn't get bored. Um, but we've had family come down for Christmas, and I had them bring down some books. And now that we're in English-speaking um, countries, I can buy some great materials where we're going. So that's another thing that's great about being in the Met or in, in the Caribbean is that it is so relaxing to know that people speak English. Not, not that it's bad in the Med, but it's just so nice to go out and not think what country are you in and how do you say thank you and please and all that. <laughs> Now, but your daughter's not going to learn another language vicariously. Yeah, I know. Maybe we could start her on Creole. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she's learning enough as it is. <laughs> so you arrived and you want to go visit some the U.S. Virgin Islands, but you had to get a visa for your your husband and your daughter, and you have a, a post in here about how to get a B one B two visa. Was that difficult? Yes. No, it's not difficult at all. The thing is, though, you have to go to the U.S. Embassy and go through an interview process. So um, around this area, the closest U.S. Embassy was Barbados. So we were going to sail from uh, the Grenadines over to Barbados, but 20 hours on the nose straight into the trade winds didn't appeal to us. So um, the flights down here are really cheap. So we just put the boat in Rodney Bay Marina in St. Lucia, flew down, took a half hour to get there, Went to uh, the interview the following day. That took about two hours to get in and out. The visas were issued the following day, and then we were on a plane and came back up here. So real easy. You just have to fill out a form, pay a fee. Um, if you are a crew and getting paid on a foreign-flagged boat, you need a, a note from your captain that, that that's the case. But if you're just a sailor sailing around the Caribbean, they don't even ask questions because it's so common for them to issue these visas. And how long is the visa good for then? Yeah, it's good for 10 years. Oh, but, okay. 
Yeah, which I, I couldn't believe when I heard that. Um, if I had known this, my husband should have got this like years ago because um, he goes in and out of America with me all the time. Um, but yeah, so it's 10 years and you can stay for up to six months at a time. You can get an extension of six months, but you have to fill out more forms and get approval. So you can stay up to a year if you get the extension. And then between visits, you have to leave a reasonable amount of time. And that's to prove that you're not working in America. So they want to see you leaving, you know, for a bit. And when you come back in, they will question to find out, you know, what your story is. And depending on whether they feel that you're being genuine or not, they'll you know, let you back in for another six months. So the B-1 visa, you can stay six months at a time, but you can get an extension, but then they want to see you disappear for, let's say, a month just so that you can prove that you're not working there. So what are your plans for the next uh, six months? What you, what are you going to be doing? Yeah, we've got um, a variety of plans. But one of the things I really would like to do is see Cuba. So we're going to head towards Cuba. I think we're going to just follow the islands, you know, north, uh, go up to uh, uh, Martinique, then down, down Dominica, um, and then wrap around, go to the Virgin Islands. Um, my husband's racing in one of the Antigua uh, races. Um, so we're going to hit Antigua. And we're still debating whether or not to do the oyster uh, regatta. So that's a possibility. Um, and then from there, uh, Cuba, uh, maybe Jamaica. Uh, it's one of my favorite islands. Not sure if we'll hit it. But then what we're going to do is make our way. We need to get out of the Caribbean by the end of June to get out of uh, the hurricane season for insurance purposes. So we've cleared it with the insurance that we can put the boat up in North Carolina. So I have family there. So you're going to be heading... Up to North Carolina before yes. before hurricane season then? Yes, we have to be there by the end of June. So uh, we'll be up there uh, around July. And then I'm actually thinking it'd be really, really cool to go up to New York City because although I'm from New York State, I have actually never been to New York City. So how cool would it be to take <laughs> my boat into New York City? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, and you'll end up... Um probably anchoring on the New Jersey side. That's where we did when I took my friend's boat up there. And it was pretty cool. You're sitting in New Jersey, and that's where the great view of the downtown Manhattan is, is from New Jersey. So that'll be fun. Oh, I'll have to get some information from you on that then, because, uh, yeah, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah, and you know, you can actually sail around the island of Manhattan. We did that one day, which was wow. really cool. Yeah, you can actually sail all the way around Manhattan. Most people don't realize it really is an island, and you can sail around it. So it's oh, that's something. brilliant. I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a sad New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep in touch as you go along. When you get a good Skype, give me an update. And anything else that we should talk about before we call it an interview? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think everything's going really good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the... Are you anchoring most of the time or are you... Are you tying up in marinas when you go to places? Uh, I would say anchoring most of the time. Um, yeah, there's a lot of places around here with mooring boys, but or buoys, 
And uh, we generally will anchor if we can. Some of the places are like parks, so you have to pick up a mooring buoy if there is one available, then you can anchor. Um, but the only reason we're in a marina right now is because we're, we're picking up friends, so we're just waiting for them to fly in, and then we're off again. Are the marinas expensive? I think uh, Rodney Bay, is. It, it ends up being about $50 a night. So compared to Europe, uh, not at all. Um, but this is the only marina we've been into. Um, but it's brilliant. The facilities are great. The people are great. There's lovely restaurants. There's grocery stores. Uh, I, I highly recommend this marina if anybody's like in the area and has to come to a marina. And do they ever try to charge you for anchoring? Oh, you get people um all over the place that will help you do all sorts of things um we usually do help we we usually do pay around 15 ec uh which is like seven dollars for someone to help us with the mooring boy generally they're hard to get it's just a loop on the top without rope to to pull up on a stick so you have to drop the tender and get in or someone needs to jump off to to get it so for seven dollars i don't think you know it's a, a an expensive cost to get someone to help you plus they're local people that really need the money um but you do sometimes you get people that will tell you where to anchor and i think the best advice i can give is just act like you've been there before um, and say you know what you're doing, um, and then they leave you alone. We have not once had a situation where we've gotten into an argument or anyone's been you know, nasty to us, although I have heard of that happening. Okay. What I was wondering is in Croatia, if you anchor in some of the bays, they come out and charge you money just to anchor in the bay, and you're not seeing that in the Caribbean then? No, unless you're in a park. Uh, so there's fees in a park. So Tobago Keys, you will end up paying 55 EC a night? No, no, no. No, I think it ended up being like 55 EC for three nights. And in Mystique, uh, you have to pick up a buoy because, again, it's a park or a private island. And that was like, that was the most expensive, but that's a private island. That was 200 EC, but that was for three nights. So, um, yes, you do have to pay if you're going on a buoy. But, like, if, you, if, if you're on a budget and you don't want to pay anything, there's tons of places you can anchor. And, of course, unless you're in a park, you won't pay anything. All right, so let's get down to dollars and cents because I know this is a, a big uh, curiosity to a lot of people is when you're comparing the cost of sailing so far in the Caribbean from what you've seen compared to what you saw in the Mediterranean, how do the two compare? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't feel like I know the Mediterranean enough to give an objective answer on that because I've only been in this, in this area. Um, I mean... Yeah, that's a difficult one because if you're going to consider like internet costs um, and then, I mean, marina, I'm finding marinas cheaper, but I've only been to one. Uh, anchoring, of course, is free. There's a heck of a lot more anchorages here, a lot more space. Grocery stores, you know, it depends what you buy. If you, if you buy, you know, something that's an import, of course, it's going to be more expensive. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, you, you know what, next interview, you're going to have to ask me that because I'd be able to give you a better, a better like, overview because I don't know enough yet. Well, I got to say, comparing your winter, last year you wintered in Sicily, the southern coast of Sicily, and now you're wintering in the Caribbean. Which do you prefer? 
Oh my gosh, hands down. I don't even have to answer that. I mean, Sicily was wonderful. It was a wonderful, great six months. Um, I think after month four, we were kind of fed up with it. Um, but I, I keep seeing on Facebook all my friends that went back there for another season. And I think to myself, I'm in shorts. It is, I mean, it's beautiful here. Absolutely beautiful. I'm swimming. Um, this is the first time in my entire life I am enjoying one summer season after another. And I keep saying to myself, I can never, ever go back to a winter again. I mean, I, I, this is brilliant. I'm loving it. Maybe you're making me think about sailing across the pond and going to the Caribbean for a change. But all right, yeah, Kim. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you, if you can, it, is, it really is great. I love it here. All right. Kim, thanks a lot. Let's keep in touch, okay? Oh, first, before we go, tell people how they can get a hold of you and follow you on Twitter and all the other ways to keep in touch with you. Right. Well, my main website is sailingbritican.com. Let's spell that. Sailing, S-A-I-L-I-N-G-B-R-I-T-I-C-A-N.com, right? Yeah, it's British and American together. That's what makes Britican. So, yep, sailingbritican.com. And from there, you can find my YouTube and Facebook um, page and Twitter and Pinterest. If you just search on Sailing Britican and and Google, they all come up anyway. So I'm I'm pretty much out there. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Kim. Let's keep in touch. All right. Thanks so much for calling. I really enjoyed our chat. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. It's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? (laughs) 